Uh, it's a risk, and that's why it comes back to that whole thing about needing to take a significant segment of the population with you. You can't do something so unbelievably unpopular that you invite your own repression. You need to do something that people will understand or that they will sympathize with to the point where when that repression comes, there's a way to push back against it. And we're kind of seeing that with this pushback against this potential policing bill. So hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I'm talking to Adam McGibbon. He's an activist and writer originally from Belfast with a long history of being involved in social and environmental protests. He was vice president of Queen's University Belfast Students' Union and part of the successful 2010-2011 campaign to stop the tuition fees increase. So Adam, uh, thank you for that and um, welcome to the show. (laughs) You're welcome. Very happy to be here. No problem. Um, just two things quickly before we start. I have to plug. I have to plug my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War. It's now available to order on Amazon, on Waterstones, on bookshop.org. It's a case study of how social media is destroying our democracy. And also you can check out our sponsor, ExpressVPN, by following the link in the description below. They're currently offering 35% off of 12 months of ExpressVPN. So, Adam, we are here to talk about protest generally and after a what could not be described as uneventful weekend uh, across the uk mm-hmm. um it seems very apt do you want to do you want to just start like why do you think we should be able to protest anything like mm-hmm. why is that right important why is that important yeah huge question um yeah well i suppose I, there's lots of different ways to answer that question but i suppose for me I really come to this as a question from my own personal experiences. So I've been involved in lots of protests over the years, um, from when I was a teenager until now, um, on a wide variety of causes. I've occupied buildings, I've supported people going on strike, I've gone on a lot of marches. Um, so I've really been exercising that right to protest for a long time. So I can see how it's important, but also importantly, um, in my career, I've also worked in countries where there isn't any right to protest, um, where people are routinely killed or brutalized for speaking out against the government, against injustice. And I've worked with a lot of people who very bravely go out there and fight for what they believe in despite that. So when you're faced with that, when you're actually working in countries where you see that there isn't a right to protest, um, working to support people in those situations, you get an idea about just how precious protest is really um it really is the the lifeblood of democracy and that seems like a very trite and cliche thing to say because people often say that well right up to the point where they're personally inconvenienced by it and they might change their mind but um that that really is what democracy is really in the in the late 1990s there were these huge protests that you might have heard of around the uh, world trade organization mm. conference in seattle uh, huge numbers of protests protesters forced that conference to actually end early. Uh, they were protesting against rich countries, setting trade rules that kept poor countries poor, um, against corporations destroying the environment, offshoring jobs, destroying workers' rights. And they had this amazing slogan. Their slogan was, this is what democracy looks like. 
So I guess that's that's the way to answer your initial question, Josh, because protest is what democracy looks like. Actually, I don't really think that uh, democracy is just pushing a bit of paper into a ballot box every four years. I think it's noisy. I think it's disruptive. It involves people showing up, getting angry, organizing together to make change. That's what democracy looks like. That's why democracy is, um, that's why protest is so important because it is, that is truly democracy in its most pure expression, I think. Mm. I mean, there's, so last year there was um, a bit of pushback from, mainly from the the sort of right-wing libertarian side of the Conservative Party who were very concerned about the the emergency powers given in the, the coronavirus laws that basically... A lot that basically clamped down on a lot of our, our freedoms. And one of the ones that they, they were particularly concerned about was the right to protest. Now, over the past year, we've seen, um, lots of people get mad at different people for protests for many different reasons, whether they didn't agree with the cause of the protest, whether they thought that it was unsafe because of COVID. But we've seen this kind of, inconsistency basically i i feel from people over there their their opinions on 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 protest they seem to think it's okay when it's their side or their mm-hmm. their cause and they they seem to differ uh, if if say they they don't agree with the cause um regardless of whether it ends up um turning violent or not it's there's there seems to be a very sort of partisan way of looking at protest but something that struck me over the past uh week or two has been that there seems to be a lot more unification surrounding this this policing bill that that's that was put forward a few well, about a month ago by the conservative government that would uh, seriously increase policing powers change sentences based on um destruction of things like statues or or public buildings that would give um, the police the right to shut down protest if it became i think an, an annoyance or a disturbance mm-hmm. um i think was the the wording why do you think we've seen that uh, that that unification or that sort of like stiff reaction to this particular moment given that a lot of those rights have been infringed upon over the past year with with considerably less pushback, at least anyway. Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason we're seeing that is because I think there's a broad-based acceptance that during a pandemic, there should be some curtailment of those rights of assembly in order to suppress the virus, essentially. But what's so concerning about this policing bill is that it would be a permanent thing. You know, It wouldn't just be something for times of a global emergency like this, it's a permanent curtailment about the right to protest. And yeah, you, you've pointed out, Josh, some of the some of the huge problems with this bill. Um, it's 300 pages long. Uh, it was tabled in Parliament a week before the first debate started. So really hardly any time for MPs to actually read the thing. And that's probably not how we want our laws to be made, where they're just rushed through without a chance to really properly scrutinize them. Um, and you pointed out, yeah, it... Uh, it introduces a maximum sentence of 10 years in jail for, quote-unquote, intentionally or recklessly causing public nuisance. Um, I mean, I can't really think of many protests that don't in some way cause a public nuisance. It's it's That is drawn in such broad terms that basically any type of protest could be considered to be a nuisance. Um, so that's a real problem. You also pointed out there that... Um, that statues, um, yeah, there's been a whole thing since uh, the statue of the slave trader, Edward Colston, got pulled down last year in Bristol. Um, there's been a whole thing about 
statutes um, at the moment under this bill, you could get 10 years in prison for vandalizing a statue, which is twice the length of what's the maximum assault for uh, the maximum the maximum penalty for assault causing actual bodily harm, five years. So there's a lot of crazy, crazy things in this bill, not, notwithstanding the fact that it's going to criminalize an entire way of life for traveler communities. It's going to make them, their existence effectively illegal. Um, huge problems with that. And there has been, as you say, a little bit more unity about it, about it around it. But a lot of the um, the people on the libertarian right or people who at least claim to be on the libertarian rights, um, particularly the Conservative Party, we haven't really heard it from enough of those people yet. You know, we've heard Theresa May come out against it. She, she was a former Home Secretary, of course, not exactly known for being a liberal. But a lot of the people who were really, really angry about this uh, temporary curtailment of our rights of assembly during the coronavirus crisis have been notably silent about this bill that's going through. And I think part of that is because of who the bill is aimed at. Mm. I think it's pretty obvious it's aimed at uh, Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion, um, protest movements that have sprung up over the last couple of years and threaten the status quo, essentially. Mm. Now, um, we'll get... One of the things we're obviously talking about here is is when when protests can spill over into becoming um, into becoming violent, somewhat, you know, mostly peaceful is a is a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. Um, and I heard someone someone comment actually, it really cracked me up about it. I can't remember who it was. It was like O.J. Simpson was mostly peaceful the night he killed his wife, uh, or didn't. Sorry, well, allegedly killed his wife. Um, <laughs> oh, it was lucky you said that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the the point I essentially want to make is that the violent violence um, is often just like this tiny, tiny step away from from really passionate protest. And and um, something we talked about in the lead up to this podcast was was whether violence is ever an acceptable form of protest, um, whether it and whether it plays any part in in modern twenty first century protest compared to you know perhaps uh, w- w- the ways in which it might have been used uh, in the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a huge topic and one that's been debated quite a lot at the minute. So. Yeah, Josh, just before we get to this, because this is so sensitive, I just want to be super clear and underline it for the, uh, the listeners that, in case it's taken out of context, that what we're talking about here, what I'm about to talk about is violence against property rather than against people. Mm. Um, if you look at the history of protests, um, people tend to have an, an accurate view of the role played by violence or violence against property in protest. You know, we often hear things about how the American civil rights movement was entirely peaceful, that the um, the Indian independence movement was entirely peaceful, Gandhi was entirely peaceful. Um, we often hear the suffragettes were entirely peaceful. And none, none of that is true. Um, those were very, very broad-based movements, a lot of which, well, you probably say they were mostly peaceful, like you said. There were times where, for various reasons, some of that spilled over into property damage. Um, but I don't think people, people often say things like um, all violence is wrong, but I don't think that people actually believe that, you know, even when they say it, because even, you know, look at the Bible, you know, Jesus would disagree with that. He was so enraged with the money lenders in the temple, scamming people, that he violently threw them out. He destroyed their property. 
And I can't really imagine too many people saying that was illegitimate or that was uncalled for. Like I said, the suffragettes were not nonviolent. They broke windows. They set post boxes on fire. They even bombed buildings. Historians think they might have bombed, there might have been over 500 bombs by the suffragettes. Um, Nelson Mandela, again, held up as somebody who uh, is a, was a, seen as like a peaceful warrior, if you like. Um, he was uh, a big character in the ANC's campaign of sabotage against uh, the apartheid regime in South Africa. He supported and directed their campaigns, blowing up power stations, blowing up power lines. Um, so there are hundreds of examples of out there out there of when property destruction has had some kind of role in protests. And I think if we accept that there are times, like some of those times that we just mentioned, where violence against property can be seen as legitimate, the question is not, is it wrong? The question is, when is it legitimate? And I would say that there are times when property destruction can play a role. Um, obviously, you wouldn't do it indiscriminately. Um, I think a good example is the climate crisis, actually. The crisis we're in at the minute. Um, picture this. Picture a family stuck inside a burning house. The only way to get them out is to break the window and drag them through the broken window. Um, I don't think people are going to turn around and say, well, you know, you shouldn't have broke that window. That was an illegitimate use of force. Um, and I think... When you look at the climate crisis and scale that up, um, we're all in a burning building. We, people are going to die unless we act, basically. We know beyond any reasonable doubt that pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere causes climate change, which causes extreme weather, droughts, cyclones, hurricanes, tsunamis, forest fires, crop failures, forced migration, and that all those things end up killing people. And if we know that there are only a small number of companies in the world. We know this from the Carbon Disclosure Project's Carbon Majors report. that 71% of all greenhouse gases in the world have been emitted, uh, 71% since 1988, have been emitted since, uh, by only 100 companies. Then we know who is doing the polluting, the vast majority of it. We know that it takes life. So therefore, if we've protested and we've occupied their buildings and we've voted and we've stood for election and we've done this and we've done that at some point um at one point we turn around and say okay well we're going to stop you from polluting by destroying the machinery of pollution so there's a book out at the minute by a um a swedish academic called andreas malm called called how to blow up a pipeline a very provocative title and i mentioned to you just before um we went on the air that um Andreas Malm was doing a talk recently at the University of Sussex and the Facebook event for, for the talk uh, was banned because it features the, word, features the words blow up and pipeline. <laughs> but he's written this book all about this subject, very persuasively arguing, I think, that in the climate fight, uh, there is some role for seeing how we've been talking about climate change for 30, 40 years and emissions are still going up. People aren't stopping, these companies aren't stopping their pollution. There's a rule for at some point we need to stop them physically from polluting. So it's a controversial argument, but it's one that we need to consider because we're talking about hundreds of millions of lives here. Really, really serious issue. Now, the, the thing that often strikes me in, in this conversation here is um, that when so for me when you say the the climate crisis is it's a justified a justifies cause in which we can push beyond the boundaries of peaceful protest 
that that you know this is such an urgent cause that that we need to be disruptive we need to say as as extinction rebellion have done block bridges glue yourselves to the front of the stock exchange um there's there's you know countless examples of really creative disruptive protests um going outside of extinction rebellion uh some of the the people in bristol uh, had staged a sit down there in the kill the bill protests where they they blocked the M32 in both directions for a while, as far as I'm aware, which was like a big. That's this is not insignificant, um, <laughs> and uh, then essentially like my and and to me those seem like like just causes, but I guess my question is how, how do we agree as a society like where the line is in terms of like what do we what do we consider to be acceptable as as violent protest as it, uh, like a damage to to whether that's like blocking a road or a bridge or or you know causing some sort of property damage or or whatever form that takes that is beyond simply say like peacefully marching down a street something that becomes more than that that is technically against the law and yet in in the eyes of some and perhaps many depending on the cause exactly justified like how, how should we as a society treat that mm, yeah it's a huge question to some degree society will be a little bit self-policing about that because um say if if you or i went out tomorrow and you and i decided between ourselves you know what um anybody who drives a car is evil and they're they're contributing to the climate crisis and therefore we have to burn all the cars now I'm not saying I believe that because I certainly don't. But if you and I went and did that and we torched 200 cars, then um, society would turn around just and say, this is completely unacceptable. I can't believe you've done this, blah, 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 blah. Um, so we would be judged by society in that respect. We wouldn't gain any support for our cause. We would actually set back our cause by doing that. Um, so society can be a little bit self-policing by that. I think the uh, the key for people who are trying to decide when that type of action may be legitimate is picking the target properly. Who's really to blame here? Because you and I both know people who drive cars. I mean, we're, we both, we're both from the most car-dependent city in Europe, Belfast. I don't know whether yeah. you knew that. Yeah. It's really impossible to get around <laughs> Belfast because TransLink is so underfunded. You still can't get a direct bus from North Belfast to South Belfast. If we decided that everybody who drives a car in Belfast is the enemy, we would alienate everybody. Um, the best, the, some of the best examples of when this has actually happened in history is when people have maybe stepped outside those boundaries, those legitimate boundaries, but they've done so in a way that still keeps their supports. So for instance, really interesting example from last year there, um, you may know about the Dakota Access Pipeline mm -hmm. project, which is a, a massive pipeline project happening in the United States, building a massive pipeline going from north to south. It's going to, it's going to, you know, it's going to have like millions upon millions of uh, gallons of oil and gas going through it. Uh, these two, um, these two Christians, they're two very religious people. Um, they decided this is unjust. Uh, it's going through these indigenous lands, these Native Americans. It's destroying their property. The people are being beat up for trying to resist the pipeline peacefully. We're going to actually attempt to destroy this pipeline. So they um, they actually destroyed the pipeline in six different places, and they got away with it. But they they turned around and said they actually owned up to it. 
they said, we did this, we did this, and we're, we're coming out and we're saying this because we're not hiding, we're not ashamed of what we did, and we want other people to do this as well. Uh, so they're actually now facing a very hefty jail sentence for that. But what they actually did, what, there wasn't a huge outcry in America of people going, oh, these people are disgraced. But there was the usual right-wing commentators saying that, people who would have been opposed to uh, pipeline protesters anyway. Mm. But they actually boosted their cause. Um, and there are examples in history of that. You know, the ANC um, in their official history are very clear that the attacks that they launched against power stations and power lines in apartheid South Africa actually boosted their support. So that's quite a long way of me say, saying to you that um, the best type of uh, action like this involves one where you still manage to keep the majority of people on side. For for most of the black population, the black majority in South Africa, um, they recount vividly seeing these power stations on fire and knowing that the ANC was behind it. And, and actually that, that boosted the struggle. It inspired them. So it's something that keeps your base on sides. Um but also provokes comments and provokes um, provokes people to change, basically. Hmm. So I guess maybe just to add a final code to what I've said there, there will never be, this type of thing is always going to be to some degree unpopular. There are always going to be people who, if we decide uh, we're going to blow up this pipeline and we're going to do this, we're going to do that, there are always going to be people who say that's a disgrace. Those people should be thrown in jail. They should be apprehended. Um, there are always going to be people who say that. The question is, what percentage of people can you make a convincing moral case to actually to take these actions? Mm. So we as a society never decide in our entirety. Mm. Do, you, do you think being from Northern Ireland makes us more or less receptive to the idea of, of violence as protest? Just given oh, given a, given the history like of 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 yeah of, of Northern Ireland, do you, do you think that makes us like more uh, yeah like more willing to accept that as part of a campaign uh, like a political or protest campaign, or do you think it makes us like more resistant to the idea because we've seen the the results of it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although, I, yeah, I, I, I think uh, the results of that campaign, of course, in Northern Ireland being one that was violence against people rather than property, so mm. very different to the type of thing mm. that I'm that I'm discussing. But yes, uh, I I have pondered this question because it's it's a big one. Um, I think it actually goes in both directions. I think it really polarizes us. I think there are people out there, people of your yours and my my generation who. Um, well, I, I remember the Good Friday Agreement getting voted on. I remember being 10 years old and being dragged to the polling station by my mum and dad, totally <laughs> bored out of my skull. Um, so and there will be other people who are slightly older than me, who are slightly younger than me, rather, who don't remember the troubles at all. And I think for those people, they will find the idea abhorrent because they've grown up in peace and they've um, heard uh, so much about how violence is wrong and how we need to get away from our violent past. There will be people who lived through the troubles as well who would never want to go back to that type of thing, who never want to see or hear about another bomb again or any type of violence. But then again, you know, we shouldn't underestimate there are lots of people in Northern Ireland who supported violence, you know, whether it was by one side or the other, um, that they, they may see a role for property destruction. They may believe that... Um, you know, to use, to use a, a certain person's viewpoint, you know, they might believe that the police are legitimate and therefore um, throwing stones at a police station is a legitimate expression of that. Uh, so I think it polarizes us. I think uh, for some people, it'll really, really be a problem. I think for some people, they will be familiar with some of these 
arguments, uh, these philosophical arguments, because it's something we debate endlessly in Northern Ireland, the, the philosophy of violence. I am actually going to host a talk, uh, hopefully next year, um, by Andreas Malm, and I'd be really interested to find out how people in Northern Ireland react to this idea. And I think it's, but I think my instinct is it's polarizing, very polarizing. Yeah. So the we talked a little bit about about suffragettes and and some some examples of violence in the past, the the ANC, uh, the American Civil Rights Movement, and 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 violent protest was was often a thing that 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 was yeah viewed as necessary um in whatever yeah for whatever cause it was that, that if we look back and we can see it and we think yeah well you know that was just the right thing to do they 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 had to fight for that that you know it just seems logical that you know women would fight for for you know the vote and for you know equal treatment or mm-hmm. uh you know black people in america would fight for the same or or you know people in in northern ireland uh nationalists would fight for the same through nicra you know that we would say you know these mm-hmm. these these things all seem like like fair enough basically you know mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. i i'm trying to figure out at the minute like what what is the capacity for a society to accept that today and maybe not even a society but a government because from what i can tell all that violent protest in in whatever form that takes in the in the 21st century uh sort of i don't know post post 2015 maybe seems to be that it just invites more government tyranny for example the 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 capital um the well the capital insurrection storming whatever however you want to describe it on january 6th in america has brought like threats of the patriot act 2.0 because you know the patriot act wasn't you know, extreme enough um they've got it's gone from like temporary fencing around the capital to like a permanent fence it's going to be like semi-permanent or even permanent now and and to me it looks like uh, th- this sorts of violence or or any sort of disruption in uh, to in this way seems to invite the government to attempt to clamp down harder like f- for example extinction rebellion have been very successful in the way they've protested but they've also now become the target of this new policing bill and and uh, I, i'm curious as to whether you think that this the sorts of 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 destruction of property or or any kind of like disruptive protest other than just like i said marches uh, play a role in the 21st century or whether government is too happy to then use that as an excuse to clamp down for that to be a way that would legitimately advance the cause yeah, yeah, it's a huge question. It's one of the big philosophical questions that Malm deals with in his book around this idea of protest and how it might actually invite more uh, ter- more tyranny or more scrutiny by government. Yeah, it's a risk. Uh, it's something he acknowledges in the book that if you if you step outside that realm, um, you do invite you do invite uh, the potential for more repression. But I guess his his overwhelming point is that the situation is so urgent um, and it's so imperative that we act, particularly when it comes to climate change, when we, ha- we have a situation where, um, in like no, like no other crisis before, we're able to measure in very exact terms when we need to sort things out and how and why, in a way that perhaps other movements in the past that operated purely on 
moral arguments as opposed to moral arguments plus climate arguments or scientific arguments. There is like an imperative to act very, very quickly. Um, so yeah, it is a, it's a risk. Uh, it's a risk, and that's why it comes back to that whole thing about needing to take a significant segment of the population with you. You can't do something so unbelievably unpopular that you invite your own repression. You need to do something that people will understand or that they will sympathize with to the point where when that repression comes, there's a way to push back against it. And we're kind of seeing that at the minute with this pushback against this potential policing bill where we're starting to see a bit of a cross, um, a cross political consensus. Thought not enough, um, but yeah, that is a huge issue. Uh, on the issue of governments um, never accepting the use of force, yeah, governments will never accept the use of force uh, by anybody apart from themselves. They see themselves as being the legitimate, uh, the sole legitimate arbiter of the use of force, and for people who aren't them to do it. Um, that's a huge problem for them. So yeah, they do invite that repression. It's it's repression that is almost a compliment in itself. The, the idea of that repression is a compliment because it shows that you're being effective. That's why we've got four of these extra powers so they can deal with Extinction Rebellion, with Black Lives Matter, with popular protest. Um, and when I say deal with them, I mean, I mean repress. Uh, the role of the police is supposed to be to facilitate a protest, not to completely rub it out, uh, which is what this government is trying to do with this policing bill. Mm. I think that's a point that's very seldom made, is is that the police are meant to be there in order to protect our right to protest, rather than to protect the government from our protests. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I think that gets lost on people a lot. I think it does. Yeah, I think it really does. Um, yeah, it, it goes back to this whole idea about um, why this bill is being proposed. And we know that um, because it's on the public records, through freedom of information requests and through through them saying it openly, that uh, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Cresta Dick, has been pushing for this law um, for over a year because uh, they were very, very embarrassed by what happened in uh, towards the end of 2019 uh, in London, where the, uh, the Extinction Rebellion had 30,000 people on the streets of London. And the police banned the entire protest. Um, then the High Court ruled that was illegal. You can't just ban <laughs> a whole concept yeah. from uh, a whole city. Um, so they've been embarrassed by it. And that's why they want these, they want these powers. And I think you have to stop and ask yourself whether that's the way we want policymaking to be done, where the police don't feel that they've got enough powers and we're embarrassed so that they they want these extra powers to be able to stop them from being embarrassed in the future. Like, that's not the way policy should be made just because the Home Secretary and a bunch of right-wing Tory MPs had a go at the commissioner. So in order to save face, we need these new laws. It comes back to this whole idea about the fact that the police... Are there to facilitate they should be there to facilitate protest and democracy should facilitate a protest not completely destroy it and rub it out mm. how hopeful are you about about our about what happens here with these with these protests um i mean you see to me it kind of looks like now i'm not saying that these things wouldn't have sprung up as issues anyway but i feel like the 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 protests and the kind of 
lashing out is has been exacerbated to some extent at least by by the fact we've all been locked down for for the best part of a year um i, I feel like like these uh like it's uh it's made us more volatile almost um but but i i i'm kind of given this this small amount of hope that I, I kind of felt like the, the British public had, had rolled over a little bit in the loss of our, our civil liberties. Um, but, but you know, at least now it seems like we're standing up for, for rights that when when it seems they may be disappearing longer than just temporarily. Like, like how much hope do you have that we will, that the protesters will defeat this policing bill and that it won't just come back in a couple of months? I, I have to be hopeful. Um, I think I have to be optimistic and hopeful all the time as an activist. Um, I think it's really impressive what's been done, actually. There's, there's been lots and lots of protests up and down the country about it, about something that's really hard to explain, you know. Um, it's one of these situations where you have to go through a whole philosophical thing about how protest is really important. Uh, you have to argue against the idea of giving the police more power because to the average person that sounds like a good thing. Um I noticed some activists have been calling it the police crackdown bill. I actually don't think that's a good idea, to be honest, because I think the average person probably hears police crackdown and thinks, oh, good, that's a good thing. Um, I'm hopeful that um, there's the beginnings of a cross-party consensus emerging, you know, like I said, Theresa May and David Blunkett, two former Home Secretaries, and I come out against the bill. We need to see more people on the Tory right coming out against it. You know, we've heard a lot over the... Um, over the last little while about cancel culture and free speech and how freedom of speech is so great. Well, I'd like to see quite a lot of the people who were um, talking about free speech come out against this bill because this really is the most significant threat to free speech, not not being shouted down at some university campus or the idea about not being able to be publicly racist. Like this is genuinely a real threat Um to democracy, I'd, I'd really like to see some more people in the Tory right come out against it. And I think once that starts to happen, then we've got the beginnings of a winning coalition that can start to roll this back. But ultimately, when we've got such a right-wing government who uh, we're living through a time of such disruption, there are going to be more movements like Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion. There are going to be movements that are even more forthright than Extinction Rebellion because Extinction Rebellion are... Uh, merely a they they, they practice strategic nonviolence uh, pacifist streets of pacifism. They would they would never, uh, for example, advocate the type of things that Andreas Malm is advocating, like you know property destruction things like that. Uh, there are going to be other movements that come out of there. We're in this period of disruption. There's going to be more disruption. So these laws, these attempts to police us and suppress dissent are going to surface in the future. And the only way to fix that in the UK, to be honest, is to have, well, one of the many ways you could fix it is to have a written constitution, like pretty much every other state in the OECD, hmm. have a written bill of rights where our rights are enshrined and written down and not unwritten or decided through case law, because that's the only way you're going to have real, protect that real freedom of speech, as well as, as, well as doing everything that needs to be done to strengthen civil society in this country, you know, not just, I mean, this, this bill is not a new thing. We have lots and lots of um, problems with democracy in this country. It's nearly impossible to go on strike in this country. It's nearly impossible. It has been since the 1980s. It's become more and more difficult uh, over the last, the term of this government. It's been incredibly difficult since um, 2015 for charities to organize themselves around election time because of the lobbying act. 
So this, this, there's been a long tail of these types of suppression. And we need to, the only way to have a real true democracy is to have a written constitution, uh, have a really strong civil society and repeal all these regressive laws that stops us being a real democracy. Mm. How, how concerned are you about the the kind of seeming slow creep of of authoritarianism that sort of seems to be streaking through this 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 conservative government uh like the the big flare issue at the minute is is the vaccine passports but like viewed in isolation i don't find them anywhere near like i find them concerning but i don't find them anywhere near as concerning as is when you consider the sort of history of what this government has already done um i just i was just making a list of things that just sprung into my mind there so we got this policing bill we have proroguing proroguing parliament in a in an attempt to avoid any sort of scrutiny or democracy they've they've attempted to ram numerous different bills through with as little debate as possible uh, the way they they attempted to use the the Henry the Eighth powers as part of the 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 Brexit process in order to give ministers just almost complete power to sort of ad- adapt EU law as they saw fit. Uh, we saw Dominic Cummings turn the the UK government website into a data harvesting um, yeah scheme essentially for anyone for for any of the British citizens attempting to like access government information on their website. They've uh, like attempted several times to expand. Exp- Expand policing powers. They've put gag orders on NHS staff. They have uh, reportedly got a blacklist for Freedom of Information Act requests and have been incredibly um, sort of non-compliant with people uh, like Open Democracy who are attempting to to use the Freedom of Information Act requests in order to you know do good journalism and and hold government to account. Like when when you stack all of those things up on top of each other, it it starts to sound a little scary. Um, that that they're kind of okay with all of these things, and it's particularly ironic coming from a, a prime minister who claims to be quite um, libertarian in in leanings, at least. Well, he claims to be. Um, like how how concerned are you about about these sorts of things? Like, do you think we will? sort of retread the path to a more sensible democracy or do you think that we have to sort of come to conflict before we 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 start to move back to a more normal form of governance yeah i'm even more concerned about it now you've listened like that <laughs> um, i hadn't considered them all in the aggregate before yeah i mean hugely concerning and it's something we're seeing across the world aren't we where right-wing governments are becoming more and more and more illiberal uh, while still extolling this rhetoric of being you know libertarians or what have you um i think it's hugely hugely concerning um ruling back a lot of the progress we've made in democracies over the last 30 40 50 years um and the question of where we go from here really depends on all of us you know there should be there really should be a great democratic movement in this country a cross-party uh affair where people get together and say this is a disgrace you know we we live in a country where a government can have a massive majority with like 40% of the vote. Like the majority of people of voting is in this country didn't vote for this government. Um, so that's, we've got a disproportionate voting system. We've got everything that you've mentioned. Uh, we've got what I mentioned there around, um, it's incredibly difficult to organize a trade union in this country to the extent the trade union membership has dropped by millions since its peak in the 1970s. And because of that, um, wages have dropped. So we've got financialization, financialization of housing, um, it's impossible for very many people in this country to ever think about buying a house and all, all these types of things building up. Um, yeah, you want to hope that 
at some point, all of these things will coalesce and we'll be able to roll this back and have an even get to where we were and have an even greater democracy. But it's really down to citizens. Um, yeah, it's it's a hugely problematic situation to be in, uh, in the way all the things you mentioned. One thing you didn't mention was voter suppression, United States style voter suppression, which we're starting to see in the UK, where we start to require people to have voter ID, um, hmm. which, of course, I know we have in Northern Ireland. Yeah, but there's see, a this lot is this expresses. this is one thing I've never understood. Like, we just get it sent out to us, um, and then we have to present like an ID at, at the poll. Mm-hmm. So, so I guess it, to me, it doesn't feel like a like a big thing. Um, I, I, I've never quite understood why that's a problem. Like, if you want a voter ID for everyone, just send everyone one, like, just for voting. Mm-hmm. I, do, do you know what I mean? I've never, I've never understood mm-hmm. that, 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 like, it's, it's almost as if they're saying that there's only these two binary choices and there's like, no, there's a really easy way to solve this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The question is who gets the ID and how easy it's made to actually get one of those ideas, is it going to cost money, how easy is the process, uh, those types of things. And also, why are we doing this? You know, the, the whole argument is that this is to prevent voter fraud. There's virtually no voter fraud in the UK. Um, and I know this because I've been involved in enough election, not just because the Electoral Commission said, because I've been involved in enough election campaigns to know how absolutely impossible it would be to commit wide-scale voter frauds, um, it would actually be easier to just go out and win the election <laughs> than to come up with a conspiracy um, to actually to come up with some kind of broad-based conspiracy that would uh, sweep an election. It would be easier to just win. Um, that's how hard it is to do vote, voting fraud in the UK. But that is the reason that the Conservatives give for putting forward um, these bills. So that's that's another quite illiberal thing as well. Mm. So when you stack all that up, really, we need, we need a democratic movement in this country that's going to push back against all of this and get us to the point where we've got a real democracy again with enshrined an enshrined constitution so we can have those rights and keep them. Um, really strong civil society, charities, trade unions, um, all, all these types of things which makes democracy rich and, and vibrant and improve society. But we have to fight for that. And I think the question is, what is the vehicle that you choose to do that? For a lot of people, that would have been the Labour Party. Um, mm. Over the past year, I think the Labour Party has disappointed a lot of people. And regardless of where you sit on the left-right spectrum, I think they're clearly failing to take the progress that they made in the 2017 general election and build upon it, which should be everyone's first <laughs> first instinct. How do you get all these people who are quite enthusiastic about Corbynism and meld them and join them to to others. We're not saying that. There may be other ways to do it, of course. There's not just party politics involved. Um, but we need a democratic movement in this country to push back against those. And it's up to all of us to do that. Mm. Where do you see that coming from? Do you see that being like a very grassroots-based thing? Do you see any sort of movements springing up at the minute that that sort of suggest to you that they they might be the vehicle through which this happens or, or you know, perhaps one or two more high-profile people that you could see leading it? Like, where do you think that comes from, like, in your in your mind? It's a difficult one. I think when you look at, when you look at countries who have experienced illiberal systems of government, um, whether that's, like, just a Victor Orban-style semi-democracy situation or whether it's a full totalitarian thing. These things tend to be totally under the surface for decades and decades and decades. And it can, there can be moments where like a torch paper is lit and suddenly 
suddenly there are you know hundreds thousands of people on the streets um i think the building blocks of that come from existing civil society um trade unions are still the, the best force in this whole country for redistributing wealth from the richest and the poorest and you can back that up with statistical evidence uh, it's pretty obvious that when trade union membership was at its highest in the uk um the 99%, if you like, were getting more of the share of income than they were at any point before that. So it's trade unions, it's renters unions, people getting together to protest against their landlords, it's community groups, it's political parties as well. Uh, I think it's probably all those things because people people aren't people aren't monolithic like that. People aren't binary. People have lots of different affiliations, don't they? Some people might be involved in a political party, but also in a community group. Um, so there's sometimes there just needs to be this sudden sense, this realization. Um, so that's what's missing, this realization that our democracy is being eroded. Uh, and I mean far beyond the protests we've seen already, like a realization by people who don't think about politics every day. The average citizen in the UK thinks about politics for five minutes a week. Hmm. Uh, so I know lots of people who probably think, God, that'd be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, that's, you need to get into the consciousness of people who are frankly just too busy, you know, like they're really struggling through this pandemic. And even before the pandemic, you know, they had a really busy job. They've got kids to feed. Uh, they're not earning enough. Uh, they're really struggling to get on the housing ladder or even to feed their family. You need to get into those people's consciousness. Um and organize those people. And it's not something that happens easily, but there might come a point in the future where a torch paper will suddenly be lit and we'll see something like that emerge. But in the meantime, it's incumbent for all of us who are involved in these types of things to just speak to people who aren't, uh, organize the unorganized, as people would say. Hmm. What are you involved at the minute, involved with at the minute that people can check out then um, if they're if they're thinking, I want to find out more about, about Adam or you know, try and get involved in some some local things that, that he's involved in. Like, whoa, what would you suggest they look at? <laughs> what should I choose? I'm involved in too many things. This is my problem. <laughs> I, uh, I end up stretching myself too thin. But I think the most exciting, one of the most exciting things I've seen over the last two or three years that has really, really given me cause for hope is renters' unions, the re-emergence of renters' unions. Um really interesting thing you know we have a we have a situation in the uk where very many people could never afford to buy their house and so they are forced into the private rented sector because there is council housing has been on a long-term decline in this country um and for, for many of us many people see council housing as being a bad thing it's been demonized to the point where council housing there's hardly any of it left those of it those of it in the dollars has massive waiting lists. So people are forced into this private rent sector. And that is probably the most unifying experience of very many people in this country, particularly the unorganized people, the people who aren't politically conscious, that they've had a bad experience with the landlords. Um, and what we've seen happen here where I live in Edinburgh and in London, to a certain extent in Belfast and lots of other cities up and down the UK and in the Republic of Ireland, is the emergence of renters' unions. So people getting together to fight dodgy landlords, uh, to take landlords to court, but also to, to use their strength in numbers. So they turn up outside a letting agent who won't refund like an unfair fee or won't do a repair and they occupy the building or they protest outside it so no other customers can get in. And that gets results. And we're starting to see groups like Acorn, it's one of the main groups in the UK. Um, in London, the 
London Renters Union are doing this. In Scotland, the Living Rent Union are doing these types of things. And I find that really exciting, not just because they're changing the conversation when it comes to housing and genuinely helping people, but that is the building blocks of a democratic movement. I think that really could change things in this country because once you start to organize people into a renter's union, I'm involved in my local renter's union here in Edinburgh. Um, and in fact, after this, after this podcast, I'm, I'm going to make some phone calls to other members um, that our local organizers asked me to. Um, that is really exciting because if you can get them to realize that there is a problem with housing in this country and it's connected to this or that other issue and it's connected to this or that issue and therefore we need to register to vote, therefore we need to organize ourselves to do this, therefore we need to organize ourselves to do that, that's the building block. The lovely thing about that is you're meeting people where they're at. You're not turning up and saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm from this organization and I'm trying to make you care about this issue that you might not care about. With the renters union, you're turning up and saying, uh, join this thing. We work together on it. Uh, it's not. It's not. It's not a top-down organization. Uh, we all work together, and it's dealing with an issue that many people are suffering from. Most people have a story about how they've been mistreated by a landlord, and then from that, it opens the door to wider consciousness. So, I'd really encourage listeners to find out if there's a renters union in their area. There's an Acorn branch in Belfast. I know that. The Living Rent have got branches all over Scotland. Acorn have got branches in pretty much every. UK city and then they're expanding out into towns. I think that's a really, really exciting thing that's happening. And it'll definitely change the face of this country. Definitely. And we're all because we're already having seeing it, right? Like during the pandemic, uh, the government were forced to bring in an eviction ban so that people couldn't be evicted from their private rented tenancies during um during the pandemic. And in Scotland, the Living Rent Union has just got that eviction ban extended for another six months. Oh, really? That's um, great news. Yes, which is incredible. And that's totally, you know, 100% down to them, down to the stuff they've done. So you're beginning to see the development of a consciousness amongst the renter class, if you want to call them that, that could really change the face of this country really change it hmm. well i will stick links for all of those those uh unions that you've mentioned in the in the description below for anyone that wants to check it out um so yeah folks uh go follow adam on twitter follow me on twitter um and uh go go protest some stuff if you feel like it's it's worth protesting it's pretty yeah that's pretty much the message we we've given here so adam um thanks very much is there anything else you want to want to plug before we finish up here uh, I would really encourage people to read Andreas Malm's How to Blow Up a Pipeline um, because I think it makes a very calm and considered um, reasoning for what I was saying, but just does it 100,000 times better than I did. <laughs> so definitely a book worth reading. It'll definitely change the way you think about the world and think about the climate crisis. So do that and join your local renters. Here we go. Now read How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Just don't just blow up the pipeline. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll have to check that book out as well, man. But thanks very much. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, follow me on Twitter, or sign up to our mailing list. Thanks a lot to our sponsor, ExpressVPN, the number one most trusted VPN. Get lightning fast connectivity with servers in 160 locations across 94 countries. Keep your browsing privacy safe with ExpressVPN and get a 35% discount on 12 months of ExpressVPN when you follow the link in the description below. Don't forget my book is now out and available to order on Amazon and on bookshop.org. 
That's Brexit, the establishment civil war. And most importantly, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.